Hi, welcome to the Creative Review Podcast. I'm Eliza Williams, and today I'm here with my colleagues Patrick Burgoyne. Hi. And Rachel Stephen. Hi. We've just published the new issue of Creative Review magazine, and uh, it's all themed around place. So we've got stories from all around the world, and we're going to pick up a few of them here and talk about them in a bit of bit more detail. Uh, we're going to cover the changing face of Paris. We're going to talk about travel advertising, and we're also going to talk about a recent manifesto that's been launched in Manchester, which hopes to put design at the heart of some of its public services. But to start with, let's talk a bit about advertising and branding for countries. Uh, but there's a few articles in the magazine that touch on this subject. Uh, some are actually quite funny. Uh, Nick Asprey has written a good piece about the various amusing slogans that countries use. But there are also some kind of deeper thoughts within them, which seem to cro- cut across both branding and advertising of how countries really need to kind of find a new way of speaking to audiences now. Because we all know those ads of the beautiful beaches or of the kind of cliches of the country. But increasingly, the most effective ads seem to be around things that are a little bit quirkier. Uh, would you say that's true, Rach? Yeah, definitely. Um I think there's a lot of opportunity um, for places now. So whether that's kind of people moving further afield into new cities to work or live. um, And also, I think Instagram's had this huge impact on tourism and suddenly Mm. kind of lesser known places are being propelled into the spotlight and becoming a kind of destination that will pop up on your Instagram feed and everyone kind of seems to go there. And I guess the the kind of cycle for somewhere becoming popular is, is pretty fast now so I think there's a lot of opportunity for places um, but I think what you quite often see is places understandably um, falling back on the same kind of cliches Um, all of these cities and countries are trying to promote themselves as a really kind of exciting vibrant dynamic place to visit of course if you're going somewhere on holiday or you're going to live or study somewhere you want it to be um, exciting and vibrant and have good food and culture and music um, but the problem is that if you kind of rely purely on uh, slogans and a kind of traditional advertising campaign, it's quite hard to get those messages across in a way that is really novel and interesting and stands out. So, um, so yeah, we have three pieces in the magazine that look at copywriting, advertising and branding. And I think they all kind of come to roughly the same conclusions is that you can't kind of try and shove everything about a country into one place. And actually the, the most kind of exciting examples of of advertising and branding are, are ones that kind of try and step away from cliche and do something that's perhaps just a bit more fun and, and quirky. Um, so the the phone a Swede campaign, mm. I think, was a, a super successful example of that. And you could call and just talk to a Swede and ask them questions about the country. And I think that was a kind of... It's kind really, of amazing they did that. <laughs> it really is, though. And I think it, it, just, it just gives this brilliant perception of Sweden as this really kind of open, welcoming, fun, friendly place. Yeah, which um, is, is something of a cliche. But I think, I guess the way they got away with that was the fact that it was real, right? It was real Swedes and... Yeah. I mean, it was all real, wasn't it? It was, yeah. And I think that's. I think there's a thing in there about cliches. Actually, everyone's always very um, keen. For, the impression I got from speaking to a lot of people who work in this area is that everyone is always very keen to step away from the kind of cliches or the thing that an area is known for. But if you do that completely, you sometimes kind of lose what made that place special or why people wanted to visit. So sometimes it's about kind of embracing that and communicating that in a way that's new and different and steps away from stereotypes without completely kind of losing sight of, um, you know, if people think that Swedes are charming and fun and cool, that's no bad thing really, is it? So it's kind of about making it work for you and and doing that in in an interesting way, I guess. Yes, because the other one, which is very much to your point, uh, that I always really like is the um, the Australian one of the the best job in the world, where 
they advertised the job to to be on a desert island off Queensland, I, th- I believe it was, and. Uh, but of course, and it had loads of applicants and, and was a real job. Yeah. Um, but obviously, in the background of that, it's also saying we have this incredibly beautiful landscape and incredibly beautiful setting here. So come and see it. But without being sort of boring about that, I guess. Yeah, because you could have just gone for this um, kind of montage of beautiful beaches and underwater creatures and, you know, snorkelling or jumping off a rock into the sea, which I think is a cliche that Mark Tungate <laughs> mentions in his article, which he claims he's never done uh, for fear of uh, injuring himself on said rocks. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, you could have done something so straightforward, but actually just putting that twist on it while still kind of focusing on the fact that this is just an incredibly beautiful place to be just works, I think. Um, and I think another shift... Um, just quickly is is that kind of move away from those um kind of traditional campaigns so you know making an ad campaign that runs through newspapers and online to say you know this place is amazing come visit is much more about thinking about the types of people that you want to bring to a place now um and also looking kind of outside of that to things like place making and one of the people i interviewed for the place branding feature was saying that he would kind of advise clients now to look at how they can support um, entrepreneurs or artists in a place and get them to do some really cool cultural projects that kind of in turn really raise perceptions of a place but without having to kind of come up with a, a kind of campaign message I mean he talks about the impact that um, Noma opening had on Copenhagen and all of a sudden Copenhagen just became this place that everyone wanted to visit and it, that kind of became a catalyst but then after that a lot of new food places opened up a lot of new stores markets things like that yeah um, and it changes the place for those who live there so it's a much longer term yeah, and it becomes a positive thing, yeah, not just for tourists, but for the people that live there. And I think that's that's another major concern now. You have cities like Venice that have kind of fallen victim to over-tourism, for example, and it seems like there's a lot of resentment mm. in that place from the amount of tourists. So something like that can actually make it a better place to live for the people who are already there, as well as just people who are coming to visit. Yeah, definitely. Pat, do you have any favourite uh, travel ads or campaigns or anything like that? Um, gosh, I think... You like Malaysia truly Asia, don't you? <laughs> well, I think things like Malaysia, truly Asia, are, are at the real stereotype end of end of the scale, where there is just such a formula for doing these things, and it'll always be somebody having uh, a nice dinner, usually involving seafood, uh, somebody going shopping in a local market, somebody doing some exotic sort of trip, like over sand dunes or down a, a waterfall or something like that. Uh, and then them coming back to a nightclub so it's like you know saying oh yeah. look we've got the traditional and the modern um, everything to see you and of course it, all the places just end up looking exactly the same I think um, with your point Rach about um, trying to f- trying to work with uh, local craftsmen or makers or whatever I think that what people are, uh, understand is that you can't just buy cool you can't just uh, slap something on to a city that where it's not credible yeah and then uh, and the more enlightened approach seems to be to actually look closely at what makes that city special because all cities even if they are seemingly quite unlikely destinations for tourism i think one of the things that the um, low-cost airline revolution has shown is that people will actually go and visit cities that they may know very little about and enjoy doing that so it's not just the stereotypical Venices and Rome's of this world but actually other cities are in with a chance when you make access so easy and you offer ways in which people can discover something really interesting and authentic about that location. Mm. Yeah I think a lot of people take a punt if they know it's only £50 return to exactly. fly somewhere well, why, why not, not go? Let's go and see what it's like um, and so I think you know that's made lots of other types of places emerge as quite interesting 
destinations that wouldn't have got a look in previously. I also think people are really keen to not go to the most visited places now. I think it's become yeah. a thing that people want to kind of find somewhere that's... Yeah, there's a bit of cachet in being, uh, you know, oh, we've, we've been to whatever it is, some Liège or something. And, yeah, and no one seems to want to just go to like, the Costa del Sol anymore yeah. and, yeah, everyone's been to Paris or, yeah. Well, this, I mean, that's a, a very nice segue <laughs> into a... Almost as if we planned. I know, <laughs> uh, very much not planned, but very handy, uh, into talking about Paris because um, I wrote a piece for the magazine about Paris, which was an interview with uh, Remy Babinet, who's, um, who's a co-founder of BTC, uh, the ad agency, which has now has um, uh, agencies in various cities across the world, but its prime sort of spot is in Paris. But he has also been working with the city on a uh, expansion plan to sort of, I guess, uh, change Paris ultimately quite dramatically. It's through um, it's kind of led by a, a huge transport uh, infrastructure change where they're expanding the city with. Uh, rail networks to go out into what traditionally would have been seen as the suburbs uh, and which often didn't have maybe the best reputation it was sometimes kind of a dangerous reputation or maybe just boring Um, and it was very much about the kind of inner city for Paris and the kind of Paris you think of is always about the inner city Uh, but there so the, the city needs more space so they're kind of expanding it with the train lines and through that they're also trying to create or to sort of re establish neighborhoods as desirable areas to live um, and it's, it's actually really fascinating having sort of lived in London for a very long time and seen the changes that have happened in London I think without the kind of planning in quite the same way I mean certainly there's not been as far as I've been aware of a kind of sense of a cultural plan for London I think there was definitely a financial plan um, in terms of the changes but I feel there wasn't somebody thinking about how is this culturally going to change the city. Whereas I think uh, in talking to Remy, there was that's very much at the heart of his thinking. And I mean, he's doing things like working with them to design the where the uh, stations are going to be and what the stations look like. So that's some sort of kind of fairly straightforward design work. But also sort of thinking about how you actually make an area desirable. And they've moved their agency to Pantam, which is... Uh, wasn't a particularly desirable area, quite out far out of Paris, and uh, and they've been there now, I think, for two years, and um, have this incredible building because places are always easier to buy when you're out of out of the centre as well. And they had this incredible kind of old grain warehouse that they've they've repurposed, but they um, but and to have created a kind of ad agency, but also a cultural hub with exhibitions and so on, things that would make you want to come there. So there's stuff that's open to the public. But I don't know. It made me think a lot about how you, how you make us, how you help a city survive. Because, I mean, I think in London, I don't know what you think about this, the two of you. But I feel like some of London's um, changes haven't been always so positive. So, what do you think? Well, I think Remy made an interesting comment in the article when he talks about um, how the work's going on in Paris. Um, is not a question of erasing local identities um, and he talks about the, the kind of spirit of those neighbourhoods um, still kind of living on um, mm. even though they're undergoing a lot of change and I think that's one of the key concerns for developments and certainly it's something that I think is a real concern across London. Um, I was just reading uh, Time Out this morning and there were some people who've lived in Peckham since they were kids and they were talking about how they feel like the, the kind of 
character is, is kind of changing and that they have a real concern that the kind of soul of Peckham would be lost in some way. And I feel like in all of those places where there's been quite aggressive development, it is about trying to kind of bring in a diverse community and that's not just diverse in terms of culturally but also in terms of profession so bringing in creatives as well as um, people who are going to be more involved on the kind of logistics side of developments and and really kind of I, I guess trying to make sure that you are like preserving the character of a place as well as making sure that you're kind of uh, giving it all the things it didn't have before or creating kind of new opportunities for for that place. Yes, because certainly in New York as well, that's been an issue, I think, that a similar thing, that there's been a bit of a blandification of places that w- once felt really distinct. I mean, do you, do you, would you agree, Pat? Yeah, I mean, you know, cities change. Cities are always going to change. They're not, by their very nature, they're never going to stay still. And there's certainly been, um, particularly in the UK, particularly with London, a, uh, um, a, b- a big change in the way people think of cities. Not so long ago that cities were starting to be hollowed out and people thought that everybody would want to live in the suburbs, commute into cities. The idea of living in a city centre, no one thought that would, mm. would happen anymore. So there's been quite recent change, and this is something actually was discussed in another piece in the issue where we talked to um, Roger Maidlin of, of British Land, whose background has been very much in this sort of reinvention of, of city centres. Um, that The idea that, that now you can build um, apartment blocks in city centres and people will really want to live there and they'll be seen once again as being a kind of prime place to live is actually quite new um, and I think what's interesting in, in terms of what's been happening in not just in London but as an example in London is the way in which thinking has changed now and, and that the major new developments are tending towards these kind of mixed use ideas so that they want a combination of people working there, people living there, people shopping there, people maybe studying there um, and recognising the value of those spaces and those places having a 24-hour life rather than uh, developments from a sort of previous area like, like for example, Canada Water, Canary Wharf, sorry, where um, the idea was that um, you wanted to put officers together with similar officers, people would commute in, work, and then go home again. Um, and I think thinking has is, is very much moved on from those days. And um, Canada Water, which is a, a, a large new development area in South East London, is going to be quite interesting as a as an example of this new thinking because for the first time maybe since the 19th century there's the opportunity to develop a kind of new neighborhood at scale right. in London so it'll be really interesting to see how that works whether that works there's some really ambitious plans for it and how much is the lo- the current local community part of these plans well i think this is always key isn't it you know there's definitely the sense that developers can come in plonk down something and the existing community feels shut out mm. literally in some cases and priced out yeah priced out. Yeah. Uh, I mean you know, to their credit from what we know so far of what's happening in in um, Canada Water they seem to have made a big effort to do a long program of uh, engagement with the local community trying to understand what they value about the site as it currently is because for example it has a big shopping centre there which is not the most glamorous shopping centre, but it's very useful for the people who actually live there. Yeah, and trying to make them feel like this is this is for them too. But um, you know that it, that has obviously been a very difficult area, and there are lots of bad examples of how um, developments like those have, have failed in that respect and become you know gentrification is the word that people always use as a yeah as a um, a, a shorthand for the alienation and the driving away of, of um, pre-existing communities. Uh, in favour of the incomers. 
Mm. And how does this relate, do you think, to what's happening in Manchester then? Because there's, there's a similar kind of thought process happening, would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think Manchester's really interesting in that for some time now there has been this um, transformation. There's a huge amount of new building going on in the city centre. There's some very ambitious 10-year plan that the city council has um, announced. But what was really interesting to me was being there last week for the Design Manchester conference where they announced um, plans for a Manchester Design Manifesto which has been developed jointly with the City Council and with the organisers of Design Manchester and with uh, Luke Corwell of um, Magnetic North who uh, the City Council asked Design Manchester to go away and do a piece of research and look at how design could play a role in the uh, future of the city. So not just visual design, not just branding but actually designed for the transport network, the public realm, public services such as health and education, how design could really be embedded in making the city a better place to live and work. Um, and they've come back with um, a quite extensive report that outlines all the ways in which people could get involved. The next stage is now actually taking that opportunity, involving as many people as possible in the city in creating working groups that can actually set some goals for the years ahead and look at some practical steps to engage with the design community but also with all aspects of the community in the city to get everyone working together on simply making life better which is supposed to be what design is about. Well, I was just going to say I think it's really exciting to hear that because so often it feels that design and kind of creativity generally still seems to often be seen as the thing you do at the end to kind of you know, make it look pretty, you might have a mural, or you, you know, and yet it's far beyond that. As I understand it, and this might be, you know, a slightly kind of glossy um, sense of things, but it really did feel like um, the leader of the City Council, Sir Richard Lees, he kind of gets it where design is concerned and where the opportunity is for Manchester. And the people involved in design, in design Manchester, I think, have done a fantastic job in, in really building their case. I mean, this is, you know, Design Manchester has been going there for six years. It started out um, as, an, as a, an event for the design industry, um, you know, a design festival where people would come and show their work, talk about their work. But what's fascinating for me is that they've actually taken that initial idea, which we've seen in lots of places around the world, but it there now is this much bigger purpose to it, which is really trying to maximise on the opportunity in Manchester for design to play a central role in, in making the city a better place to be. Well, I was going to second what you said, Liza, about it just seems like a really exciting thing because design at its heart is all about kind of understanding behaviours and, and solving problems and making things simpler or making things work better. But you're right, it seems like sometimes kind of design is, is slightly left out of the conversation or it becomes more about purely aesthetics. So, mm. you know, how, how you can kind of improve on something once the framework's already been set. So it's super interesting to hear that you know, the city's willing to kind of open up this conversation and hopefully take on board some of that advice. Yeah, I think the ambition is 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 is, is there. I mean, if you look at what they're saying about something like, for example, the, the ageing population in the city. So how could designers help uh, mitigate the effects of uh, an ageing population, make life better for older people, integrate them better in the community? And when you start to think about that, design has an incredible role we can play mm. in that, whether it's about mobility, whether it's about um, services that are easy for everybody to use and, and, and the idea being if they're easy for everyone to use then they'll be easy for older people to use and too often those kinds of services 
either either because of the budget or because of uh, maybe a lack of foresight or lack of the right kind of connections, don't engage with people who could make them a lot better, but not necessarily any more money, but just by doing them in a more thoughtful way. And I think that those kind of principles, if they're applied throughout uh, everything in the city, could lead to some really exciting stuff coming out of this. Definitely, I think it's also that thing of, you know, sometimes the, the people that have been involved in those sorts of services have always been looking at it from that inside perspective so knowing those budget restraints and being aware of the kind of limitations or the problems they've experienced before but actually that can be a real barrier to kind of doing things differently I guess yeah. so presumably it's, it's a yeah. good thing to have people looking at it with kind of fresh eyes from I think Manchester's well placed not just because of Design Manchester because of also the presence of a, a couple of, of really influential organisations so you've got the co-op um, and they've been doing some really interesting work around service design. So things like, for example, we covered on the site a while ago, the way that they tried to reinvent um, funeral services. So not something that anybody enjoys having to interact with, not necessarily the most the kind of user-friendly thing for people, but they really thought through all the kinds of things you need to think about when somebody passes away and how to make that so much easier and simpler for people to deal with online. I think that's a really good example of how you can look at a service and by applying what designers do best, you can make that so much better for people. Um, and then obviously, of course, you've also got the BBC there now, which is a big driver of all sorts of good things happening in Manchester, whether it's trying to uh, engage with the local community and try and involve um, a really kind of diverse section of the, of the uh, population and coming to work for the BBC in, in design roles and creative roles, whether it's um, again being some an organisation that be, can be tremendously supportive of initiatives like this and also just the idea of, of a city like Manchester then capturing the world's attention because once um, you know word starts to get, get out then things snowball and becomes uh, you know almost sort of self-fulfilling in some ways I suppose you know it captures the world's imagination and this sort of narrative takes hold uh, that Manchester is a place that um, is a, is really exciting from a design point of view. Then you can really see how those things can can and gain momentum. And that's very much been happening as well from the sort of cultural side through the Manchester International Festival, um, and also through places. They've sort of there's art centres like Home and also the Whitworth, which interestingly I think have been whereas so often in the UK things gravitate towards London sometimes without intention, but they do. I feel like Manchester in line with uh, places like Sheffield and Liverpool as well, have really worked to try and create a kind of more distinctive name for itself and actually reached out not to London but to other parts of the world in the exhibitions they put on, in the kind of programming they've done at the festival and I think that's been hugely successful. So those things combined with the design community is creating a kind of sense that Manchester's got a huge amount to offer culturally, I think, which uh, is very exciting. All right, on that note, because I feel we could talk about these things for a long time, um, we're going to leave the podcast here, but you can read more about the topics that we've talked about and some of the articles on our website on creativereview.co.uk. Thanks. Thanks.